Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 27, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Have we gone into a time warp? I think it's February, not September. Well, once I once and I got greetings to from to Atlanta the instead of the day, I was you know just off. <laughs> it is February. <laughs> and welcome greetings to from Shepard. Atlanta. <laughs> and uh, good evening, sir. <clears throat> yes, and we do live radio. Yeah. If you're just wondering, we we, we would re-record that um, if we weren't live as a, as a radio show. That's one unique thing about our format is we're not just podcast. We are a live radio show. Um, every Sunday at 7, on, except for those special occasions where you pre-record. And that's where you get fun things like me trying to think that there's 2,000 days in any month, be it September or February. <laughs> um, but we're excited about our guest tonight. Uh, join us for, I think, the third time um, from Strike Pack, The Cycle, uh, Dr. Rachel Bittencoffer. Uh, Dr. Bittencoffer is going to join us and talk about the 2020 elections, also her new pack and um, other work she's up to. And then, of course, we've got plenty of topics to discuss until then, and um, the first one obviously is the biggest news story in quite some time. Um, it has worldwide impact, um, and it is a very you know, sad, tragic uh, situation that sadly could have been avoided um, if not for the egomaniac actions of one person, um, and that would be the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Um, I believe it was uh, kind of, in many ways, overnight Thursday for us, or Thursday morning, we woke up to this, um, and it continues on. But I guess, the, in a good way, the timeline of the invasion has slowed down. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on um, Russia invading uh, Ukraine to this point? Well, it's just heartbreaking to see the photographs and video from um, – from the Ukraine and to hear the stories of, you know, what's happening on the ground. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's, you know, I think we sometimes forget how horrible it is uh, when we go to war. And it's a reminder of how important it is to try to avoid uh, actually yes. um, sending t- troops. Yeah. Um, Tim, your, your your thoughts on, I know you probably may consume at times more cable news than the other two of us, um, given your schedule. Um, you probably saw more of these things unfold. What are your, some of your thoughts on the you know early days of this um, tragic situation? Well, I'm sure I share, of course, similar feelings of shock, outrage, sadness that, that that much of the world's people are experiencing when they witness what is happening and 
unfortunately, in this age of global instant news, it comes to us as it occurs right in our living rooms and dens. Um, this, a lot of people thought that this would be over rather quickly. Like many, I have been surprised at the valiant defense of Ukraine by its citizens, the the heroism uh, of of many people, rich and poor, uh, citizen and soldier, and uh, I've also I've been equally surprised by the seeming inept. Uh, effort of the Russian army thus far. Uh, I'm I'm still hopeful, of course, there'll be a a peaceful resolution to this, but but I fear, you know, like everyone, worse in the coming days. Yes. Now, now, this has been going on for some time in building, and we kind of avoided it because none of us are foreign policy experts, and this really – it's a pretty complicated issue, but, of course, it's just too big a situation now uh, to not discuss with so many you know, mm-hmm. international implications. And I know when mm-hmm. the first started, it just seemed like that, you know, the Russian forces had all lined up. They had, you know, plans prepared, and they kind of rushed through um, a lot of the Ukrainian countryside until they got to Kiev really a few days ago now. And they um, have not been able to take Kiev, the Ukraine capital, nearly as quickly as they had hoped well, um, or they planned. And I wonder if part of that is because you know, they want to take over Putin. Vladimir Putin wants to take over Ukraine because he wants economic interest. So if he destroys everything about Kiev and then um, other parts of the you know, country and the city – then what he's trying to gain will be lost other than just controlling the the landmass. I don't know. I I don't don't know, David. What what I'm thinking here is is you're talking a a city the size of Chicago. Their second largest city is the size of Philadelphia. It's a country of 44 million people in the center of Europe. Um, I, I don't think they thought the matter through. I think they thought they would just roll in with little resistance, take the country over, decapitate the government. And and that was the purpose of this invasion, obviously, was regime change, uh, maybe uh, throw the leaders and stuff in jail or disappear them. And uh, that just didn't happen. Uh, and they were not prepared for uh, prolonged warfare. They, they didn't think of things like their biggest battle tank, and it's very impressive, but it gets about a mile to the gallon in fuel. Well, 200 miles, they're out of fuel. Well, guess what? Their supply lines uh, weren't right, and they were literally abandoning, abandoning armored vehicles, uh, they were being met with resistance. Uh, the, they were surprise attacked. 
they they just haven't been able to take control of things you mentioned Kiev the second night of the operation they were to the city's outskirts 17 miles away from the center of the city and there they still sat stuck uh and they've already committed two-thirds of their force to this fight and uh the question is now what will vladimir putin do i don't imagine he is happy and he's not going to leave until he can declare some sort of victory uh is this going to turn into urban warfare that's going to be messy um it's just uh it's, the whole thing's just been very surprising from the very fact that they invaded anyway. But but you got to give it to our intelligence services, don't you guys? They called this one exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I know that there's more going on behind the scenes than than we see, because obviously it is a military operation. There's tactical things, and while we're you know not going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, committee probably had troops at this point. We are going to give other kinds of support. Um, right. Another thing that was kind of surprising is, and Catherine, I'll let you speak to this first, is really the, even the night of uh, the, that inv- initial invasion, a lot of Russians, I, I don't know an exact number, um, but a lot of Russians took to the street and disagreed vehemently publicly with this attack, and I think that may have surprised Putin and some of the other uh, Russian uh, political leaders that so many people in a country that's not as free and open as ours with protest would um, speak out against this invasion. Yes, I mean, I I think uh, Putin is probably a little surprised by the overwhelming criticism from around the world, including his own people, of, of um, of these tactics and uh, of the overall idea and of the tactics they're using. Um, and then, you know, we've also seen international and Russian businesses, um, you know, challenging and criticizing the, the um, invasion. So, um, but I agree with Tim. He is not going to quit until he can claim some kind of victory in some shape or form and so that's a little scary to me like that uh because as he as the um as they lose the ability to move forces forward because of logistical and supply chain problems then it leaves you know other tactics uh it may lead him to use other tactics that are scarier. So I hope we, I hope he can figure out a way to find a victory in all this, uh, or we can stop him before that. So it's all very scary. And, um, I think, you know, the fact that it's sort of a new world in uh, military force now, because like we've said, you know, we know what's happening every second. You've got people with their phones, you've got people with their, Twitter and WhatsApp and all these different social um, media outlets reporting it. Now, we don't know, always know what's true, but we're seeing a lot. 
So it's very interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think this. I think you hit on an interesting point about social media, Catherine. There's um, some things that sometimes we're leery of, um, or we know that they can have negative um, uh, consequences. But in this situation, it's really um, been a positive. One is, um, you know, didn't exist a hundred years ago. Economies weren't so intertwined as they are now, particularly in Europe, in the Americas, Australia. You know, more of the, the, the free enterprise world. And so, uh, you know, economies are intertwined to where when all these countries stand up and, and seize Russian assets, stop um, access of um, wire transfers through systems. Because I know originally, like Germany was hesitant to do that, they changed their mind. That froze a lot of Russians' abilities to, um, you know, move money around. Um, I, I think I sent y'all. The uh, owner of one of the top sports franchises uh, in the world right. is Russia, and he's Chelsea in London, had to give up ownership. I think that may have been somewhat, you know, kind of like either you give it up or we're taking it um, kind of thing. But all these situations, and because economies are so intertwined, there can be much harsher uh, direct consequences to Russia uh, in this situation. Social media is another one. We've heard about all the negative things about social media, and this doesn't make it go away. Well, but Russia had to try to close you, down Facebook and other type or limit access you, um, to try to you make this information you make, around. Yep. You make an you make an astute point right there, David. That's what's going on in Russia. The average young Russian doesn't watch much television, but they are on social media constantly, not just Facebook, but TikTok and all of that. And they're getting a lot of their uh, immediate information about that war from, you know, those sources and not Russian state television. they, They know from looking at what they're seeing with their own eyes on videos in Ukraine that what state-run television in Russia is telling them is simply not so, and uh, especially in the cities where Putin doesn't have that much support, they're they're outraged by it, and they're out in the streets. And, uh, you know, their defense ministry is even having to admit they're taking casualties. Uh, When bodies begin coming back, that makes it very real. And it makes them question, wait a minute, I thought the Ukrainians were our brothers. What are we doing? Why are we committing to the largest land war in, in, in Europe since World War II after, after the horror that we saw then? And, and so I, I think his support's kind of soft. He's got a lot of support in the countryside. But in the cities right now, he's got a problem. And if and the longer this goes on, the worse it's going to get for him. And so he might have stepped into something that he may have trouble um, exiting from because I don't think those people are going to start, stop fighting him. Even if they somehow overpower and take the cities, he's still going to have a guerrilla action uh, running everywhere. There's, they don't have the forces there to control those 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 large cities and stuff. His hope was to install a puppet government and get out and uh, 
he's 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 really in the, really in the soup here. Uh, we got to say something about President Zelensky, don't we? There's there's there is a, there is a man there. Uh, just think, three years ago, he played a teacher on a TV show that got elected president of Ukraine. And now he actually is. People thought he was a joke, even though he got elected overwhelmingly. And look how he is standing tall right now. Uh, what a what a wonderful thing uh, that that he's doing this. Uh, I, I, I hope he'll be be okay there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think much has been made of people who. In NATO, different countries, including on that said, hey, if you, you want to evacuate for your own safety, and he's standing with his people, I mean, I, I guess right. he, he's captain of the ship. He's going to go down with the ship if it goes down. Hopefully it doesn't. And I do think the longer this thing, you know, that they can hold Kiev in particular, even without a guerrilla force, the more likely it could be that more support will be given um, to cripple, you know, um, Putin's economy. Uh, possibly mm-hmm. more, um, you know, tactical reinforcements to help Ukraine, you know, continue to have freedom. Because I do, think people you, are starting to really ask the question, and I'll ask I'll send it to Catherine and Tim, is do y'all think this is Putin wants Ukraine, Putin wants all countries that used to be part of USSR, or Putin would just take this as far as he could to seek empire? Catherine? I think uh, – I'm not sure what – you know, I don't know what's on his mind, but I think he really stepped in it, though. And I don't think he's (laughs) going to be able to – I don't think he's going to be able to go very much further uh, because his funds are going to be completely cut off. And that – I mean, it's not just international business that's affected by this um, block of SWIFT, of the SWIFT system, it's all his money too, all the government money. So uh, I think he's really stepped in it, and his motivation I think is power always. So you know, the, I, I, I think he thought this was going to be something he could pull off, and obviously he picked the wrong country. Yes, I mean, quickly, you know, consolidate that, then go back to negotiation mode to, um, you know, mitigate the economic damage. I agree that may have been his his short-term move. I think he, at a minimum, wants to reconsolidate the USSR, um, and I'm not so sure if he had an easy time with that. What would stop him from moving to the old Eastern Bloc countries? And then from there, who knows? Tim, I'll ask you a question. I went ahead and answered it second. Uh, just Ukraine, all former USSR, or empire? Well, I think the long-range goals, the former USSR, uh, which you'll have a problem with it because part of them now are are in NATO. Uh, But as far as Ukraine, in Vladimir Putin's mind, he's an old KGB guy, a product of the Soviet system. He does not believe that Ukraine is a legitimate country, but a breakaway republic of the of the Soviet Union tied to Russia and should be returned to Russia. 
And and that's what he's going for. And the way he'll accomplish that is with regime change. And he began thinking of this in 2014 when his own puppet got thrown out in disgrace. And he's been angry about it and going after Ukraine ever since. And that's whatever bit of this is about. Yes. Um, so we'll kind of see. Um, now, we've talked a lot about that side of it, you know, the, the, the international affairs side of it, the tactical affairs, which that's where it really matters. But now let's kind of switch back domestically Mm. since we have a little bit of time. And um, obviously there are a lot of Republicans that have have hit the right note on this. You know, um, Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney, uh, Mike Pompeo. I saw some, you know, very positive things the way he views it. Um, But then, of course, you have Donald Trump. You have – uh, Tucker Carlson, who was so glowing in his uh, view of it from the Russian perspective, it actually got rebroadcast on Russian TV. Um, you have some other bit players that probably don't even know what they're talking about, like um, Wendy Rogers, uh, state senator from Arizona. Um, Catherine, what are your thoughts on what I think Liz Cheney called the Putin – or was it Mitt Romney that called it the GOP Putin conference? Um, You know, I just think I just I just wish that people who don't understand these things would not have access to I mean, they may be senators, but they don't know what they're talking about. And, you know. Uh, I don't know. I I think it's really uh, hard. I I always object to criticizing uh, our president in the middle of of situations like this, but we've 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 absolutely grown past that to where you know they just criticize uh, the president the the opposing president for whatever. Whenever they can. So, and Trump. Yes. Well, we're going to kind of anyway. pause this conversation, and then we're going to switch over uh, to welcome in our guests for the third time to the Kudzu Vine, Dr. Rachel Bittencoffer. Right. Welcome, Dr. Bittencoffer. Well, thanks for having me. It's only been three times, huh? <laughs> well, it, it was always a, a delightful time, but we know you have such a, a busy media schedule. We don't want to be greedy. Uh, but we always love when we get you on. Um, but but since we last had you on, you have started a new pack effort called Strike Pack. So right off the bat, we wanted to let you tell our listeners about that. Yeah, I mean, I started Strike Pack about a year ago, coming out of the 2020 cycle with the understanding that if Democrats had blown the down ballot in 2020 with the best fundamentals that any party could ever hope to run with, uh, you have a sitting incumbent president who is a hot mess in many ways, but at the contemporaneous context was in the process through mismanagement and gross negligence, uh, you know, basically murdering hundreds of thousands of Americans, right? And then you had the Republican Party sitting on all of the extra relief aid. The uh, first package was the only thing that they would move, right? And then they just sat there and denied aid for months. So to me, it was apparent that Democrats needed help because 
2022. The fundamentals are not in their favor. They are going to be the in party, so the tuned out electorate is going to, um, you know, render a verdict not based on a lot of uh, information, just on imagistic stuff. And I, I thought, hey, I got to get in here and start cleaning up this electioneering shot because when we look down the road at 22, um, and I knew that there was going to be issues with certification of the election for 2020. So, you know, I was looking down the road at 2022 and, and the, just the sheer fact that we, we've really got to keep Republicans from holding power because you can see what they do with it. And down there in Georgia, you're living in this, um, you know, one-party rural state, and it's clear that one of these parties has lost its, its uh, handle on reality. Yes. Well, well, before we get into 2022, um, you mentioned that, you know, Democrats did so poorly down ballot compared to where they should – why they should have. Why do you think you know that happened in 2022 in particular? I mean, 2020. Yeah, so when I set out to to build, that's okay. When I set out to build Strike Pack, I was like, okay, well, man, these guys are a hot mess in terms of messaging and delivery, right? <laughs> but in that year since, I've actually come to understand, no, no, it's much, much worse than that. And and the re, those are really actually symptoms of the underlying disease in our system, and, and that underlying disease is that we don't have a centralized, hierarchical strategy for electioneering, and we don't have, like, a command structure, even if we did, to deploy it. So, um, you know, what we're really looking at are two, two electoral, like, efforts, right? One of them is a Maserati, especially now. It's been fine-tuned over 10 years. And it is performing at on both like jobs of electioneering. You have one job turn out your coalition, which includes independent leaners of your base, and the other job is to win over that small pocket of conversion voters, right? Get them to break more in your favor than your opponents. And when you're talking about um, like the stuff that campaigns can affect, we don't have a system to maximize either one of those two equations, right? Uh, and the Republicans do, and we just saw it, like the 2021 version ran out first in Virginia. We're going to see that same campaign play out nationally, and it's clear that Democrats don't have a system today to go up against it, especially with these tough midterm fundamentals working against them. So that's what I'm working on now. It's trying, you know, I call it Operation Fire Alarm, getting everyone to know the extent of our, our, our angst, and also that, that we have very little time left to, to turn the Titanic in a direction that we can survive in 22. Yes, well, now let me ask you a question about 2022. Um, if the election were today, and that's the trick question, because it's not, it's November and things can change, and we and you, and campaigns can change. If it were today, where do you see the fundamentals of the midterms? Yeah, and, you know, here's the thing. We'll talk a little bit about the stasis because uh, the, the fact is, it was, <laughs> like, things could change, but we they wouldn't just magically change. Like, we would see the change and be able to measure it. And so the reason why is, is there's really two data indicators that matter uh, in terms of what we, what we should expect in the fall. One of them is the generic ballot. Do you, you know, survey question that asks people, do you want Republicans or Democrats to c control Congress, right? And, you know, Democrats have to have an advantage on that, even by a couple of points. And they are, of course, trailing and have been ever since the power shifted from Democrat to Republican to Democrat, you know, January, February of 2020 is when you started to see that invert, 
and it always benefits the party out of power, which is now the Republicans. Right? And the other one is enthusiasm. So when we ask people how excited are you to vote, we can look at the two parties and see if there's a difference. And if there is, it's not a good sign for the one that has a deficit. And we are running about a 10-point deficit against Republicans. So when you say things could change, I will say, well, we will know for sure whether or not they are changing because we can see these indicators. These are aggregated, you know, very uh, publicly accessible data indicators. And if they don't change, then nothing is going to change. And if nothing changes, then to answer your question, as of today, the Republicans are on track to pick up about 30 House seats. And if they pick up 30 House seats, they're going to be picking up that Senate seat down in Georgia. And they're going to probably flip the Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania governorships, which is a huge problem for 2024. So I, um, again, cannot stress enough that currently we know we're on trajectory to lose. Uh, we have, I, I at least know exactly what we have to do to at least give us a chance to, to invert that generic ballot. It really is a full court press on narrative setting. Uh, we have to make people look at the modern Republican Party and make an assessment about whether that's the kind of change they want to embrace in 2022. Yeah, so you're you're kind of describing how important, you know, national trends are because I just sent an article this past week to Tim and Catherine about how popular Gretchen Whitmer – or I'll just say this – how good a job she's doing with Michigan's economy. It's probably the best economy they've had in decades um, and yet yep. you're saying she's at risk. Raphael Warnock has started his media campaign, and he is doing an outstanding job on likability as a person. But yet yep. the national trends would sweep out a Gretchen Whitmer and a Raphael Warnock just as two examples. Exactly, because national trends and partisanship are the two drivers here. And, you know, if the electorate loses Democrats and independents that mean left, and gains Republicans and Republican independents that lean right, you can see where this is going to work out, especially when we have this conversion pool, you know, that that 10% that may swing one way or the other, and one party is, you know, arguing, hey, conversion pool, don't vote for the other party because it's full of extremists that want to take all your stuff, right? And our argument is, well, we gave you roads and bridges and we do things, you know, It's in a perfect world if that if that conversion pool was the way that they are idealized in these focus groups and in um, you know media coverage it'd be one thing because certainly you would take somebody like Doug Jones and put him up next to Tommy Tuberville and it's a no brainer I mean Doug Jones and Tommy Tuberville shouldn't even ever be in the same sentence in terms of qualification for office and yet you know when you see turnout go down in Alabama who's winning it's definitely Tuberville right. So we really, really need um, a system that can meet the moment, and that moment is about macro narratives, not micro, you know, um, you know, running against specific Republicans. We have to put every Republican on one plate, and, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do in Virginia. I wanted to sh- basically run the campaign that Virginia is living now. Virginia is living the realities of, of flipping to a red state with, a, with an extremist in charge of their state, right? And what I was arguing is, look, this man doesn't – there's really very few Republicans running that are, you know, on the true ideological moderate spectrum. We're talking about Hogan in, in Maryland, that kind of person. Glenn Youngkin was quite clearly running a very ideological campaign. 
and Virginia's voters should have been told, this is what's coming to your state under Republican rule. Yes. Well, well, final question for me for now, um, and that would be talking about, you know, macro issues. The macro issue every time is the economy. Now, right now, if you talk about, uh, you know, job growth and job opportunities and wages, it's an outstanding picture. If you talk about um, prices of those goods that that you um, have to spend your wages on, it's not good. I mean, I mean that's that, that's the two sides of the coin. How do Democrats paint that picture and focus on the job growth and the wage growth over the price growth? Well, but you can't ignore the price growth, right? But like, here's the thing about the price growth: what is it driven by? It's driven by the pandemic. Why are we still rotting in a pandemic? Because Republicans decided that they'd embrace let it rip back in March of 2020. And since then, you know, it has ripped. I mean, we look at the red state mortality rates, even though these are states that are much more rural and less urban and populous post-vaccine. And it's clear what let it rip has done to, you know, a state like Georgia in terms of its casualty list and, and the sickness that has spread through. And all of those things are going to put pressure on supply chain. So to me, the, 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 what you need to be doing is in, inflation's a thing. It's certainly something that they're going to be hearing about in every newscast because, you know, Easter ham will get inflated and fall turkey will be inflated, right? And so you're, what you need to do is make an argument, this is what's causing inflation, and it's the other party. Otherwise, you're not going to win that debate. Yes, that sounds like sage advice. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Tim, who will pass it to Catherine um, before it might come back to me. Tim? Good evening, Dr. Bettercoffer. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, first Always my pleasure. Of, Thanks. <laughs> first question out of the gate, and let me preface it by saying a week ago, this question would have been Nowhere on my radar, uh, radar, because normally American voters, with few exceptions, and I guess 1968 and 2004 come to mind as exceptions, they don't cast votes with either foreign affairs or national security uh, as a major issue on their radar. But because of unfolding events in Ukraine this week, will those two items be a major issue in the fall campaigns? It's a really good question. I think if you leave the Democratic Party and its affiliates up to itself, then probably not. If I'm in charge, then absolutely, because here's the thing about the midterm effect. It's a fact. You can see it in that data. Mm-hmm. And if you want to move it, you got to cause a referendum conversation or the conversation to move from the sausage-making of the party in power and over to something else, anything else, right? And in the case of Mm -hmm. of 2022, you know, I think I, the Lincoln Project guys in Never Trump land, a lot of the conservative, former conservative, former Republican people I work, you know, with, they would all tell you the same thing because it's it's, it's just a a fact. We, if if the 22, the electorates presented, like, uh, um, uh, a system that is, you know, normal, and the focus is on normal things, that you really cannot win that fundamentally, right? So, like, even mm-hmm. politically, the advantage is to make sure that the public understands this moment that we're living in 
is a moment for democracy. And you really got to mm-hmm. frame the context of 2022 as an autocracy versus democracy moment, and then make it clear to people what autocracy will look like for them personally, not for other faceless people that they probably don't care about, for them personally in terms of their personal health, their personal wealth, and their personal actual security. Mm-hmm. And, and should we paint Donald Trump, because of his inflammatory rhetoric just this week, as the face of that autocracy? Yeah, you, you need to because, you know, the reason is that, I mean, it's true that Democrats have been rolling their, um, like their witch hunt um, mobilization propaganda operation for about a decade now, right? And, and, and they started, who did they start with? They started with Obama because he's the president and people actually know who he is. But it took them a long time to teach the electorate who Nancy Pelosi is, right? Uh, and then the mm-hmm. squad. And eventually the focus in the last three years or four years has shifted entirely over to the squad, right? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. like, you know, still, though, within, like, people who receive direct mailers and watch Fox News are going to know who AOC is. But if I go stand in a grocery store here in Eugene and just start asking people, do you know who AOC is? I would doubt very much that very many people around me would know, Okay. So I mentioned mm-hmm. all of that to, to say, like, you need Trump's face to be the tie into autocracy because he has 95% name ID in the electorate, and somebody else like um, Ted Cruz or Ron DeSantis will not have that kind of name ID. So you, mm-hmm. if, a, if, if you're already trying to teach people, you know, the Republican Party is, is anti-democratic, you really want to say, uh, you really want to illustrate that through faces like Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, right? And understand that the electorate's not going to know who some of these obscure players are at all, right? Yeah. So, like, uh, today so, I'm, I'm sending a GIF out branding Trump versus Zelensky, right? Uh, Trump right. is anti-American and also a wussy, and here's this guy who's out there <laughs> like, literally putting his family in harm's way to, to save his, his, his country, but, like, if I was to take that off Twitter and send it as a direct mail to even people who are, like, Democrats who vote in every election, most people would not get it but unless I labeled it as Zelensky because they would not recognize uh-huh. his image. And I'm not kidding about that, right? So you really got to mm-hmm. understand the clay you're working with in the electorate. And it's not enough to say Youngkin is like Trump and then ask the voter to make the deduction as, as to why in the heck that matters. Right? You have to say, Youngkin is like the Republican Party, and this is what the Republican Party means for you in terms of your personal health, wealth, and safety. Mm-hmm. So setting, in setting the tone, as luck would have it, the State of the Union address is Tuesday night. What is the tone for the president to strike? Could he, in this closely divided nation, even make – a great deal of difference with this particular speech. What do you think the president needs to try to accomplish Tuesday night? Well, here's the sad state of affairs about our sick political system, and it's just so important for people to understand that we're not in a healthy democracy. Where you mm-hmm. know you could argue whether it's collapsing or collapsed or pre-collapsed, but it's not healthy. Okay, in a healthy democracy, public opinion should be elastic to events. 
So if something happens and a leader handles it well, it should be able to be responsive. And likewise, if he fails. And we could see that internationally in COVID data, especially that first year before the vaccine, where most countries' leaders either experienced a large rally around the flag effect or a very large deficit for their mishandling, like Boris Johnson. And in the United States, we did not see any public opinion change, okay? And that's because partisans are so locked in to seeing and evaluating leadership or a politician first through that lens of partisanship, and this is extensive over to independence as well. So to answer your question, I honestly believe that Joe Biden could stand there and deliver something on the par of Reagan's speech in Berlin when the wall fell down, and still we would not see this rally around the flag effect that we have seen under, underpinning every leader we've ever had through history until the last 10 years. And uh, we certainly have never faced a foe like Putin and this Russia problem, which is a geopolitical quagmire of epic proportions in a situation where half of the population is being told not to trust their own leadership. Okay, one final question, and then I'm going to throw it to Catherine. If it is a given that uh, everyone is just set and and we, it's just simply almost impossible to reach so many on the other side, should the Democratic Party spend any treasure and resources to flip Republican voters this year, or is that just simply a waste of time? I'm glad you asked that question. I, and, you know, I, haven't, I don't think I've ever spoke with specificity about this um, particular thing in public before. But let me explain. The, so the answer to that is no, but it's also yes, right? So in, within mm-hmm. this voter file, like here's the thing. Republic, there's a realignment going on, right? It started in the South. You guys are in the epicenter of the Dixiecrat Revolution, and you see white conservatives, like eventually we think it's going to go to two-party competition, and white conservatives flip all the way to the Republican Party. And now the South is as Republican as it was once Democrat, but it's the same voters, right? Well, that mm-hmm. has nationalized, and we have a realignment effect, especially pronounced on, on the lines of education, those with college or at least some college and those without. The Republican Party has been leaning in to their own realignment and flipping strategically people who have historically been Democrats. So it's clear that that can work, right? You can go and get the other party's voters to vote for you. But if you're going to go and hunt them, you probably need to bring with it that same level of targeted sophistication. So when I, if I was running a campaign, say, down in Georgia, it's not that I would divert resources entirely away from conversion. Number one, I'm going to convert by disqualifying the opponent, which is how Republicans do it. But I'm also going to target within that voter file where I know people are inclined to break, and that's along education. So those college-educated voters that have been casting ballots for Republicans, voting Republican primaries, are my first pick, and I'm just going to hit them on national security and economics, and I'm just going to disqualify the Republicans in their eyes because most people do not know any of the news that you know. And so your job as an electioneer, first and foremost, should be to tell people the most damaging things about the opponent that you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Excellent answer. Uh, one major story that I could didn't get to was the Supreme Court, but I'm going to send it over to Catherine, and I'm sure she's going to want to talk to you about that particular thing. Catherine, go ahead. <laughs> 
Hello, Rachel. It's so nice to have you on the show. I hope you're Yeah, I'm so excited to be back. Through all this. Um, <laughs> oh, I am. I am, you know. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you talking about down ballot races. It's my um I mean my my co my co hosts here will will are I'm sure driven crazy by my constant <laughs> talk about how important municipal and state races are for our quality of life and for our yeah. uh, and for progress because we that's how we build our benches. So I'm so glad to hear that you're working on that and I think you made some really good points just now. I think um we have to we have to do both. We have to go after our good our our good voters and I also saw your tweet about um voters abroad and I think that's really interesting that we you know I don't think we spend enough time uh targeting them and I, that's what I wanted to ask you about how do you think we can do that how can we get those voters to not because they can vote in state races too not right not just in federal races absolutely so when I look at the six million people living abroad right? Uh, Democrats living abroad. So these are people who took time to join a Democrats living abroad group. To me, I'm like, okay, well, I want 100% out of that pool. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then you think about where those could get geographically distributed and not all, no offense to anybody listening to this, not all of my Democrats abroad are going to be equal, right? The ones that are living in Georgia are going to be much more valuable to than if, you know, the ones that couldn't vote back in Alabama. That said, each one does get to vote for their state and you know, municipal elections. I, I, I think I, I, I've never actually had anyone ask me if they, if the abroad ticket covers the whole ballot, but I just can't fathom that it wouldn't. So, um, you know, it's just such a easy pickings population to focus on and how to get them to vote, which is the question that you asked me, I am convinced comes down to stakes framing, right? Uh, the Republican Party motivates, and they are doing it now to the point where in Virginia they hit presidential turnout and precinct performance. In Glenn Youngkin, uh, or in the, in the districts Trump did the best in, they basically kept that performance. And we, we lost a half a million votes statewide, and we shed a lot of them out of the best performing precincts in the state for Democrats. So we really want, in my opinion, to be hard, hard, thinking about thinking out of the box. Where are voters? How do we find them? We got to convince them to vote. And if they cared on their own about things, then we would not. They would be voters, right? So we, what we need to do is is to make it clear to them, your vote in this fall election matters. In fact, it's a matter of life and death. Yeah. That's always, it's always hard to do that because you want to, you want to be optimistic uh, to encourage, you know, participation, but you also have to be critical and um, realistic about the outcome. So um, that's why it's important that we have really good people working on messaging. Well, okay. Let's yeah. Talk so about here's SCOTUS. the thing: you guys need not worry because 100% of the democratic system 
is geared towards positive motivation. <laughs> and I'm like the one thing, you know, that's saying, hey, probably we should make people terrified too. So you guys need not worry. There'll be plenty of investment on the things that, you know, that you guys care about. But what I worry is that if I can't build the war machine to defend, to, to go to toe-to-toe with these guys, that, that by the time people find out positive motivation isn't enough, it's going to be too late. Yeah, I, know. I, 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 I definitely think <laughs> there's like this fine balance between those two, and it's always a challenge to, to, to reach it. Um, do you think we're going to have trouble uh, with, uh, with the SCOTUS nomination? Yeah, I mean, just to be really clear, like we might we might philosophically agree that there's a balance, right? <laughs> and it's always a struggle to meet it. The data tells us a different story. It tells us one side caters to fear, threat, hate, right? And and you can quantify that in the content of their ads and their affiliates. And when you look and quant what we ran against that in 2020. It was not those things. Like the, 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 I can't remember the specific numbers, but GOP ads are exponentially more likely to mention things like radicalism, extremism. You know, we don't run negative ads hardly at all in our system. We certainly don't run the effective kind that I'm arguing, which are not traditional negative ads as you might think of them. And that discrepancy has to play into part of our down ballot underperformance in 2020, along with the, you know, unilateral disarmament that we did when we did not do in-person field that cycle. Okay. I mean, I, I, I see your point that, you know, that, I mean, there's no question here in Georgia in our, um, in our legislative races, the, it's very negative and, and, and like in our in the governor's race in two thousand eighteen, you know, we had all the governor candidates, you know, trying to outgun each other and out you know uh but I I'm always I'm always leery about uh too much negative advertising from the Democrats, but I've like supported a lot of losers in my life, so I have given up on <laughs> my own uh what my own uh sensibilities are. I think I <laughs> probably am too optimistic about people. But if uh I mean I I'm sure your the data uh holds up what you're saying and I uh, I I hope we I hope we can do it this time. That's all my all I'm saying. So, well, let's you know, it used to be to... an imbalance of, I'm sorry, it used to be an imbalance of flowers and guns, and now, guys, you know, it's a flower, as far as I can tell, in 98% of our universe, it's a flower versus a bazooka. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, so I, I just want to make sure, you know, we don't, like, you know, it's kind of like bringing one climate denialist onto a panel and being like, hey, you know. Uh, so it, we know for a fact Democrats election year differently because we've measured that quantitatively, <laughs> and it's a, you know it, certainly something that you might see negative stuff, but the system itself is not oriented in a, a negative campaign kind of way. Okay, you're right. Do you think we're going to have trouble with the SCOTUS nomination? Oh, I, I would be shocked if the three Republicans that voted for her for the circuit court 
vote for her for her uh, SCOTUS, but we'll see. <laughs> In any case, as long as we can keep that one senator alive, we have the votes, and that's all that matters. Yeah, that's the. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's going to be our only. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not counting on any of those any Republicans. Even the ones who... You certainly shouldn't. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah. and yet, I, I think I tweeted earlier in the media about how how unfortunate it is when the media covers this, so it's covered, the story covered this possibility of, of whether Republicans would come on board. And the problem is, is that we know the Republican Party is not functioning like a normal political party. It has no intention of doing so. And so when we expect people, like we set up expectations for people of bipartisanship in a system that is, is crippled and not functioning well, uh, it's an unhealthy and sick system, and no one is contextualizing that for the public. So, it's, you know, I very much doubt we will see bipartisan rally, but who knows? I think Lindsay might feel a little salty over this Putin thing, and, that, and if one of them breaks, it usually takes one or two with them, so... Well, it'd be nice to have have at least a couple. I mean, it's it's always disappointing when it's when these nominations are straight down the political lines, just for their you know the nominees' own you know credibility with the public and everything. It just would be nice if they had a yeah. better. Well, yeah, it's another way but, of measuring uh, polarization. And, and, you know, in the historical data, we had justices, like I believe Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her confirmation was in the 80s or something like that, right? Yeah, it was, like, 80, it was, it was like 87. Yeah. yeah. This is, we're not living in a normal time period. The government is right. not functioning the way it did for 230 some odd years, and you're absolutely right. Uh, a candidate with immense qualifications, and she's frankly more qualified than the last couple of nominees, uh, should sail through confirmation somewhere in the 70s and 80s. And if we ever get back to that point in America, then we'll know that I've mischief managed saving democracy. <laughs> but, uh, exactly. Go hold your breath. <laughs> I'm going to send it back to David for final questions. And thanks so much for being with us tonight. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Yep. Yes, well, um, Dr. Benikoff, we started off the show with a strike pack, but we know you do other things. I mean, one, you're just probably on social media all the time, and we know some of the sources, but you've got other projects you work on. Um, if you want to share with our listeners to conclude the interview, anything that they can, um, you know, where they can see you to find out more of your political thoughts. Yep, I would really encourage people to follow my Twitter handle because I um, am messaging and waging war for democracy on there all day, every day. I work that in addition to all of the other things I do, and it, uh, I think some people find it entertaining, and that's at Rachel Bittacoffer. You can also follow Strike Pack at Strike Pack. And in terms of what I'm doing right now, I'm really focused on letting Democrats and independents who don't want to live in a GOP autocracy know that as of today, these two fundamentals indicate that Republicans are headed for a red wave, and the only hope that we have is to disrupt those two fundamentals and change the narrative. We really need to put the heat on the GOP. Yes, well, we have thoroughly enjoyed tonight. And we left so many topics uncovered, so we hope at some point later in the 2022 cycle we can get you back home. 
that I would uh, like that very much. In fact, I'm going to be flying down there to watch my Oregon Ducks get beat by your Georgian Bulldogs in the fall. So maybe we can even do it live one day <laughs> in studio. Who knows? Uh, how exciting. Well, um, I will um, <laughs> leave it there and then uh, keep letting everybody read you on uh, Twitter, following Strike Packs actions, and what have you. Thanks again. Sounds great. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yes. Well, that was Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer. If uh, people look at our feed, there are links in the latest tweet I um, have and the latest tweet Tim has um, to her Twitter feed and to Strike Pack so people can easily access it there. And, and like I said, there was so much we didn't talk about. But we just have just about three or four minutes to finish the show. And just something – uh, since we know the Supreme Court uh, nomination is going to, um, you know, take a little bit of time, in the, this, new, uh, this week in the news, early in the week, was the most bizarre thing out of Georgia. What I would say is the number three candidate now in the GOP nomination uh, for governor um, made a bit of news. She was the number four candidate until Vernon Jones dropped out, and I guess that moved her by default to number three. Um, Candace Taylor, she ran for U.S. Senate. I don't remember where she finished, but it was nowhere close to the money, if you will. Um, and, and so she decided to run again against Brian Kemp, against David Perdue, against Bernie Jones. Um, threw a lot of yard signs out, I've noticed. Um, but this past week, she made a little news because um, a comedian, a political-leaning comedian, uh, Blair Erskine, uh, she did a parody video of Candace Taylor's, um, you know, campaign. I won't say the ads because there probably not be money behind them, but her campaign videos. And uh, for some reason, Candace Taylor or her campaign or some combination thereof thought it was um, an homage to her. It was a public. It was positive press, and they cut the actual pieces of the video into her campaign campaign video and then touted it. And then later, um, you know, people tried to, I guess, point it out in the comments and other places, and she kept talking about, hey, since uh, Blair Erskine did the video in support of our campaign, our fundraising's up, and just kept on until the point in which um, the British press even picked up on it and the Independent. And then finally towards the end of the week, I finally think she figured out she was being trolled and tried to troll back very ineffectively. Um, Catherine, I know I sent you some of the links, and you probably saw some of it um, elsewhere as well. What are your thoughts on really the naivety, the, how naive Candace Taylor is? Yeah, I was just like – I mean, I thought everybody knew about Blair and her little videos. Like, I thought that was pretty well known, and for – for Candace Taylor to not even know, first of all, not know about them and immediately recognize that it was a, um, a joke uh, was one thing. But then for her to actually use them was, uh, I mean, I honestly, it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, it, I, I mean, yeah, naivety, naivety. Um, Lack of uh, personal reflection, uh, m- not being able to understand a joke. 
the whole thing was uh, pretty embarrassing for her, I think. And then when she tried to turn around, it, turn it around, it was really awkward. So she did not come out looking very uh, smart or savvy and all that. Yeah. The, the, the good thing is she didn't ruin her uh, great reputation heading into this. I remember the, the pink gun um, campaign ad or whatever video from the Senate campaign. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on the um, Candace Taylor uh, week in Georgia politics? Yeah, and with a great slogan like Jesus, guns, and and babies, <laughs> right up there on the side of her bus, and she does not understand the joke or that Blair Erskine was, was trolling her, uh, I, I, that, that she apparently thought she was a fan so much that she retweeted the video herself that mocked her and said, thanks for the support, Blair Erskine. Uh, she's been running in aggregate polling, David, 3.7% in the polls. I've noticed the hardcore libertarian types up here like her, even though in this campaign she really, really, really has gone full-throated Trump. Unfortunately, Trump is supporting someone else in this race. She's been stuck in that 3 to 4% um, window. I, I, I don't think she's going to do any more than that, even though she is the reddest of red meat is what she's trying to throw out there with things like that uh, slogan uh, next to that giant photo of her on the bus, I, I might add. Uh, uh, how, how is such a slogan even a consistent thought, David? I'll leave you with that question right there. Well, you mentioned that, that some of the libertarians in northwest Georgia are big on her, but the craziest thing is is Jesus, babies, and guns, uh, and I guess it's guns and babies. Um, too bad babies didn't get billing over guns. That seems just wrong, uh, but maybe I just <laughs> like babies better than guns, personal preference. Mm. Um, but really, being realistic, I mean we're assuming that babies, in her case, when you listen to more of a rhetoric, is abortion. Um, so therefore, she has two of her three issues would be very much a state-established religion and then restricting reproductive rights. Those are not things libertarians are for, at least true libertarians. Then you have to wonder, these libertarians are supporting her. How much are they really libertarians? Or are they just you know, shock-the-system conservatives? Um, because only the mm-hmm. guns would you know, be um, consistent – with their political, you know, values, um, but it is just, uh, you know, bizarre. I wonder how much this is like you. Know, she's from South Georgia, and she's isolated from the rest of um, a lot of the political rhetoric in Georgia. And then she is just seemingly a very naive person. Um, and I'll just be curious. This attention does. I mean, because some of these folks. I mean, where do the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens? And the Wendy Rogers come from? They come from this kind of playbook. Does she actually suck up some of, some of Vernon Jones' support? Also, this comes in the very week in which Herschel Walker, the most likely nominee for the Senate um, nomination on the Republican side, said he's mad at David Perdue and Brian Kemp. Therefore, people say, oh, well, if Herschel doesn't like Brian Kemp or 
uh, David Perdue, that we must need candidate C, the third option. Catherine, does that does Candace Taylor possibly uh, a pick up some of Vernon Jones' old support and b some residual effect of what Herschel Walker said? Oh, geez, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> Maybe I, I I don't know. I have a feeling people will uh, hold their breath and vote for one of them. Do people really listen to Herschel Walker? I hope he's he's going to be the nominee. He's going to get hundreds of thousands of votes in the GOP primary. In the general election, if there's two million votes cast, even if he loses, he's going to have a million votes in the general election. Right, but that that doesn't mean that that that, how to run power right. Well, that doesn't mean that people are going to listen to what he says about other candidates, though. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've I just seen the playbook too many times with the, the, the Janice McKee trends. Uh, there's so many of these characters cut from this mold, and she looks like the next one. And they've soured on, you know, seemingly Kim Pamper do a lot of them. Tim, your thoughts on, you know, what's her upside out of this? Well, she got uh, a lot of publicity. Uh, maybe her fundraising did go up some, but I, I still think she's got a ceiling of 4%, and I don't think she's going to get that. And uh, outside of, you know, 15 minutes of extra fame, I don't, I don't really see an upside for her unless it'll propel her to run for some local office in Appling County that she can win. Yeah, and I don't know the demographics, the political demographics of of whatever county in southwest Georgia she's from. I, I'm doing good. That's in where she's southwest from. Georgia. The big city. Yeah, the big that, city of Baxley. Yeah. Baxley. Okay, so Baxley. I'd have to do some more research on, on Baxley politics. Is that Appling County? It is. That's is that the Appling? county seat down there. Yeah, popula- population, about 5,000 people. Baxley's got a thing. I'm exceeding like expectations, even putting Baxley and Appling County together. So I'm, I'm further along than I thought I'd be in breaking this thing down. Well, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, Tim, I would take that bet, and I would take over on the four uh, if the election was today. I think she could get more than 4%. We'll see how it unfolds in a few months when people actually go to the polls. Well, I want to thank, again, Dr. Rachel Bickhofer for coming on the show. Always excellent. And then next week we're going to have an interesting um, show we're going to have a guest, the communications director of a local effort um, in East Georgia. Really, I guess it's kind of Central East. Um, it's several counties, including Newton, Walton, uh, Madison, Georgia, Rutledge, Georgia. i got to put all those counties together. But Chaz Moore is going to be our guest, and they are against a um, revenant automobile manufacturing plant coming to their area. And he's going to tell us. You know, why they're against it, kind of what the people, I guess, want um, instead of having an auto manufacturer. Maybe their thoughts of, you know, should Georgia get it? If so, where? That kind of thing. But it's going to be an interesting discussion, kind of different take. It's not going to be national. It's going to be real local, although the product's at least national, possibly international. So we'll be interested and talk to Chaz next week on the show. Until then, good night, everybody. Good night, guys. 
we are the heirs of that first revolution. What a strong and...